Hello and welcome to episode 123 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ. And over here is your co-host, Mike. Tonight, we've got uh, a lot of piano music. Yeah, piano, but in different guises, really. Don't yeah. we? we have, um, I don't think I have any uh, solo piano, do I? Oh, I do. We have the uh, Keith Jarrett. Oh my yeah, gosh, how right. could I forget that? It's like the highlight. Yeah, Danny Zaitlin on uh, solo piano and jazz, too. So it should be interesting after... A week of uh, guitar the previous week. Right. And in between that week, and the reason why I didn't remember that we were doing the Keith Jarrett is because my brain is really fried. <laughs> it was a really rough week. Yeah. It was a lot of work to do and all kinds of things going wrong, too, For on my side. I had That's a, right. uh, I ride a bicycle and the tire, it didn't just go flat, it burst. So I had to, like, find a place that could replace the uh, <laughs> inner tube and the tire. Never had that happen before. And that was a big pain. That was one thing. And then, then there was a, I had to deal with a government office in the middle of the week too, unexpectedly. So I don't know. Uh, yeah. On top of that, it's really hot. And it's hot. But I like that. I like the hot weather. But you know, in Japan, it, it can get really humid. And uh, but it's not so far. We've been. Uh, it's just been really hot. We're coming out of the rainy season now. So right. today was mm-hmm. extremely hot, but it was rather dry. So yeah, really didn't nice. Mind it too much. I liked being out in that. That was good. I always made sure yeah. I got some vitamin D from the sun's rays. Yes, me too. Yeah. And, well, we got some uh, nice feedback on our guitar episode, too. Do you want to share that? Yeah, we did. Um, we talked about last week um, Heike Mathewson's, um album of uh, works by uh, women composers. Right. And uh, she wrote back to us. She really appreciated what we had to say. Uh, she said, um, I'm going to read what she wrote here. She said, thank you guys for a great review of my CD. I want to change these uh, these words, though. She says uh, review. Everything's, I don't think of it as a review. I think it's more of a discussion, although really one of us goes off and starts talking about what we're hearing. The other will sometimes comment. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to think of them as reviews. I like to think of them as discussions. Anyway, she said, amazing podcast, a real discovery for me. Oh, I wish uh, more people yeah. <laughs> would discover the podcast yes, part of our problem is that we have a lot of musicians listening to us which is great okay because absolutely they, but uh we i think uh we want more of uh just the ordinary the listeners people who listen to the the music um listening and writing to us and things like that it's great to have the musicians there but um they're kind of a small audience <laughs> we want the bigger audience yes anyway we want both we want you musicians to stay so keep listening and tell your audiences to listen to and then she writes uh you know why i had mentioned Anne emmerich that i couldn't find um her when i searched for her on the internet right. and i can only find the um <laughs> the, the mystic who had lived yeah. <laughs> kind of close to the same time really but she says you know why Anne emmerich disappeared always two choices why women composers disappear death or marriage and usually a married woman could not continue to play due to moral standards well certainly in the 19th century that was right. true. Only if she had the luck to marry a colleague, which uh, I guess Anne Emmerich did, if I remember correctly. I'm just going by memory now. Mm. I don't have my notes in front of me. Uh, in the meantime, I found her marriage year. It is 1838 because we didn't know when she died, right? We just knew her right. birth year. Uh, before she was an active concert player in the Munich area, which is Heike Matthewson. is from Germany. I don't know which part. but um, And to talk about the sound, we had mentioned that uh, she had this really nice quiet oh, sound yeah. nice on her uh, strings and she mentions why she does that she says she uses very old quotation marks old fashioned strings no carbon high tech stuff 
or any mm. other kind of material. They don't seem loud, but have amazing projection. Okay, well, we wouldn't know that on the uh, CD, but um, in a live performance, we, that would be something to hear. Right. A recommendation by Pepe Romero, the great uh, classical guitarist. When I studied with him and I stayed faithful to them, she says. She says, congratulations. <laughs> we didn't do anything. And cheers from Germany. Well, cheers to you, Heike Matthias, and thank yeah. you for writing to us. We were thrilled to hear from you. Yes, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, it had the great title of Guitarosaurus. Guitarosaurus. And, uh, <laughs> She's not really a Guitarosaurus, though. She's no. more of a gu guitar tops. What are you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> guitar tops. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What would be okay. another? I don't know. Anyway, there's a lot of good music uh, for the guitar on that episode. Maybe she's a guitar raptor. I don't know. Guitar I'm trying raptor. to think of some good... Uh... Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this week is all piano music. All the music we're going to talk about in the episode description. You can find links for it on Spotify and Apple Music. And also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, streaming from France. You can also listen to the podcast there as well. Get everything in one place. Now, if you don't see the full description or recording list, or the links aren't active on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over and check us out on our host site. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where everything is easy to follow. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a music-loving friend. If you take a moment, also give us a ranking, write a short review. That helps us get listed in recommendations. It's another way we can get new listeners. Also, do come and follow us on our Facebook page. You can get extra info and more releases throughout the week. I always put up the new jazz releases every day when I go through them, all the best ones I share. So you want something new to listen to every day, you can find it there. And you can also leave a message or comment there. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, do check out our friends over at The Same Difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast, Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra. Look at several versions of The Same Jazz Standard in every episode that comes out every two weeks. Hear little snippets from each version and their humorous and educational discussion of what they like and don't like about those jazz standards. So they cover the old, we cover the new, and we're going to be getting together with those guys uh, sometime over the summer. Yeah, probably late August. I'm th we're looking at late August at the moment, but don't quote us yet. So that should be a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, we'll talk about some jazz standards and uh, even get there sort of uh, ideas about a little bit of classical music as well. So Yeah, we're going to hit them with a classical. We'll only give them one. I don't want right. to push them into three hours of classical music. <laughs> I don't know what will happen to them. There's a link for their podcast in the description. And at the end of our broadcast here, we'll have their little promo tagged on the end. So take a listen to that after you uh, get to the end of this week's show. Yeah, we don't want them to be like too genteel, you know, by the end of the podcast. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> can't, right. can't give him too much classical music. Okay. All right. And uh, this week we have uh, we have a musical death. Someone who kind of meant something to me, and so this I think okay. this deserves a uh, a dies irae. So all right, let me get over to the on. piano here, and uh, here we go. Okay. There it is. All right. We have lost. Andre Watts, American pianist. 
He died at the age of 77, not very old. Now, he made his concert debut when he was 16 years old. Boy, I mean, you just know what you're going to be, I guess, if you're that good at that age, you know? Uh, With Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic. Man, he's a high school student. Wow. Yeah, going to play with Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic tonight. Okay. Uh, He was later asked to substitute in place of Glenn Gould, of all people, with the Philharmonic. And that performance is credited with launching his career. I think this is all in the the 60s or maybe early 70s. He made some recordings, not all that many, but one of them that really kind of made an impression on me was uh, Children's Corner by uh, Claude Debussy. And this was the first Mm. time I had ever heard these works. And there's one... um, piece in that set called Jimbo's Lullaby. Now, all these, uh, there are pieces that are that Debussy wrote. They're not really young people's pieces, but they're they're kind of childlike. They're sort right. of um, written after um, his daughter's, um, like, toys and things like that. And Jimbo's Lullaby, she had a, she had a toy elephant, and uh, Jimbo is the elephant. Hmm. And the rhythm of this, it, it kind of has like a lumbering sort of rhythm that um, most pianists played down, but um, in the recording that Andre Watts made of this, I was really amazed by, um, he had this real, this sense of this big kind of lumbering animal, you know, sort of um, right. in the rhythm uh, with the lovely uh, melody that comes with that too, because it's, it's a lullaby. But it was, you had these sort of two elements happening at the same time, and he just characterized it so well. I was really so impressed by that. So he kind of made me a little aware of what was possible on the piano, what expression meant mm. and things like that, so... Try to listen to that uh, performance if you can. It was the uh, only performance of that work that ever captured my imagination to that degree. I've um, heard other pianists play it, and I've played it myself, and I couldn't even get what he was doing. I don't know how he did it, <laughs> but it's a pretty fantastic performance. Anyway, um, he mostly taught, though. This is why he didn't make a million records. Um, he taught at the Jacobs School of Music from 2004 until his death, and he was said to communicate to students not only music and piano, but also deep life wisdom oh. and profound musical insights. This is the kind of teacher you want, okay? Because uh, it's not music isn't just a bunch of notes. Right. It's supposed to be something that helps us get through life, I think. And just like all the arts. And if it's not helping you get through life, you probably use an art. <laughs> if it's making your life more difficult, it's time to switch <laughs> up the game, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Speaking of getting us through life, hmm. our first um, recording tonight is one that Russ and I have been looking forward yeah. to talking we've been about and listening 30 to years. <laughs> for a long time. In fact, we've been waiting 30 years, yes. you could say. <laughs> this is um, one of our favorite composers, um, our favorite joint that we, that we both really like. Okay. It's a CPE right. Bach, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach. I think the oldest surviving Bach son. I think he was the second born. I forget. I can't, I can't remember. He had Bach had loads of sons. Five sons, didn't he? I think. Yeah. Well, that survived. There were more. There were oh, a okay. lot and daughters too. <laughs> so, I had a list. That I could look on Wikipedia, but I don't want to do that now because I'm just all right. I have to say, I'm just it's, it's my mind is shattered this week. So if I'm saying <laughs> things wrong, that's why. All right, okay? we'll cut you some slack this time. Cut me some slack this week. Anyway, but I wanted to really talk about this. Uh, Württemberg Sonatas, played by none other than Keith Jarrett, the great, yeah. um, you could say jazz pianist, improvisational pianist, just pianist. Yeah. He really is one of the great pianists of the 20th and now uh, early 21st century, too. In fact, uh, this is on the ECM New Series label, and like so many of these um, ECM releases, this one was recorded long before it was released, but in this case, 
It goes yeah. way back to 1994. This yeah. recording was made in 1994, and we're Amazing. hearing it now. <laughs> <laughs> Whose decision was that? It know. had to be Manfred Eicher's decision, and I would like to know why he made that decision, because this would have been great to hear then. Now, I have to say, though, CPE box music really started to become more fashionable in classical right. music in the early, the late 2000s, early 2010s. You heard that great Andreas Steyer recording of the uh, piano concertos played on the harpsichord. And he really uh, put them across exceptionally well. He got the sense of humor, mm -hmm. and uh, we really loved that recording. But this one was uh, done really early. And uh, Jarrett actually said that he um, wanted to record these because he had heard harpsichord recordings of them and thought there was room for a piano recording. Right. And I'm wondering what recordings he heard. Now, they could be in the booklet notes written by none other than Paul Griffiths, one of the great uh, uh, writers, scholars, and critics on 20th century music. Uh, but I didn't read them because I don't have the CD. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. This is what happens when you're online. They may be somewhere online. I couldn't find them, though. I did find some brief notes. And all of these um, recordings were made on May 18th, 1994, at Cave Light Studio in New Jersey. Oh wow! My my brother might be happy to hear. Um, that's that was um, Jarrett's uh, personal studio. Now Keith Jarrett, we know him as a great jazz player, and of course the um, the Kern concert, which is him pretty much improvising without a net. I mean, he just sort of went out there with, I guess, no plan and just started oh, wow. improvising, and mm. that's what he came up with. That takes a lot of uh, nerve, but he's also made some pretty great classical recordings too. He's the pianist on probably the best ever recording of uh, contemporary classical music. That's uh, Avro Peretz's um, ECM album um, with Tabula Rasa with right. uh, Guidon Kremer. And uh, he's on that. And it's, it's just a fantastic record. Everybody should have this. It's one of those recordings that just everybody should have, even if they don't like classical music. It's, uh, that's worth having. Anyway, and he's done a lot of Bach recordings too, as he's a big mm -hmm. um, admirer of Johann Sebastian Bach. But here we have um, one of Bach's sons, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. And uh, he's recorded these six sonatas, and uh, we were eager to hear them, and let's talk about them now. Yeah, jump in. All right, the first one, Sonata in A minor. Wat Quen, 49, number one. Okay, so there are six of these. They go in order on the album. Uh, I should mention also, these usually can fit on a single album, but um, this is a double album. It's two CDs. The first movement, Moderato, and... What do we hear? Nice pacing, beautiful piano sound. Uh, yeah. Jarrett has this really clear, clean sort of sound, rounded notes. He's just he just sounds great. He's got a beautiful sound even when he plays jazz. Yeah, he's not he's never really like kind of. Well, he he can be percussive, but he does he has this really neat kind of clean sort of sound to him. Hmm. He's a little distant from the mic, uh, but there's only the slightest room ambience. On this one, this is going to change later for some strange reason. Even though all of these were recorded on the same day. Anyway, there's discrete pedal used, and this matters here. This doesn't have the whole, like, historically informed sound, because a harpsichord, of course, doesn't have a pedal, and he was inspired to record these because of hearing them played on the harpsichord. The recording does sound historically informed, like he's aware of mm -hmm. uh, what the uh, scholars were saying at the time. But he's, and he's taking that because he's who he is. He's going to do his um, own right. interpretation. He's clearly heard a lot of harpsichordists play this. The playing is sensitive and uses, and the use of the pedal makes it sound like it's leaning towards romanticism at times, like the 19th century. But it's it's always just for brief periods and uh, also for expression. 
It's all smoothly delivered and highly musical, as you would imagine, uh, from a pianist of this caliber. This movement is harmonically fairly straightforward. None of uh, CPE box <laughs> hijinks. <laughs> Slamming this. on the brakes. and <laughs> Yeah, okay. We're going to hear that later, though. Uh, Jared takes any sudden pianissimi very sensitively and very suddenly, pulling at the heart rather than raising a smile. He kind of keeps things elegant and serious, I think, in this uh, movement. Mm. He's got a gorgeous tone throughout. I like the way some of the harmonic surprises in the recapitulation genuinely come across as surprises. Um, Jarrett will just suddenly fall into them as though any twists of harmony were expected. Like he kind of sees them coming up, he plays them, and you're listening at your house, and you're saying, oh, what was that? <laughs> you know. The playing is warm and alive, and we get a good sense of the long, drawn-out approach to the final cadence in Jarrett's phrasing and tempo. The second movement, Andante, the opening chimes out of the piano with discrete pedal, um, damper pedal, you know, sustaining the notes. Each note comes across clearly with round tone. I like the slight rallentando Jarrett provides in the approaches to the cadence, he, making them come across warmly. But again, that's usually not something that's used you know, outside of romantic music um, mm. in, this, in this music anymore, anyway. The repeating bass notes at the two-minute mark and after are subtly played, the right hand being the focus. There's a bit of urgency in the repeated chords up to 2.30, then tension is slowly released, and the final cadence is reached via a trill, which is kind of interesting. And the final third movement, all of these are three movement works. Allegro assai, this is slightly slower than the harpsichordists of today take it. The rhythm is precise and carefully etched. Um, the accompaniment is played staccato, and I think this is a sonata movement from the way it um, moves. Uh, the figuration in the right hand is classical sounding, steady, and measured. Jarrett sacrifices excitement for musicality here, which is not a bad trade-off since he's so appealing to listen to. This is going to mm. work no matter what he tries to do. At 2 minutes and 10 seconds, we're in a new section, and it starts with an intriguing chord. Jarrett will discreetly pedal to create more space when the harmony changes. The prolongation of the cadential material in the third minute is beautifully judged, building tension, keeping the listener slightly on edge. Inner voices in the harmony come through beautifully on the recapitulation, repeat, as the music heads towards its final cadence, which results in a downwards arpeggio to end the work. So very beautiful playing in the first movement. The next sonata in A-flat major, the first movement is un poco allegro and has a beautiful dancing quality. The rhythm is accented even more so at the slightly held back tempo. This is something about uh, Jarrett's playing here. He never really speeds through any of this music. He'll slow it mm -hmm. down and shape the lines. I think he prefers to do that. And this is going to be the case really in every piece. He never really goes at breakneck speed in any of these um, movements throughout the album. Jarrett really follows the un poco instruction here. Uh, again, light pedal and plenty of detail is audible. I love his always musical shaping of lines. This is probably why he likes classical music so much, because he has that line written out, and he kind of knows how it's going to be shaped when he kind of looks at it. The opening line is played as overlapping melodies, as though they're waves coming to shore. I really like that uh, effect. Mm -hmm. Even the odd harmony comes across as graceful in this performance. A few harmonic shifts occur in this movement, and Jarrett makes them sound like odd shifts rather than humorous moments. A lot of um, harpsichordists will make them humorous by kind of some sort of timing, comic timing with the rhythm. Um, Jarrett doesn't do that, though. The rhythm and shaping of the lines make this sound classical rather than 
proto-classical. So he's kind of squarely in the uh, the Mozart-Haydn era here. The pace throughout is leisurely, without a trace of racing, and always with a light touch. Second movement, Adagio. The pauses in this theme can be played for humor. Jarrett rather takes them at face value and comes across with a highly musical line again, which is rather surprising because it seems like C.P.E. Bach wants the humor here. Right. The same graceful and light touch is used in the first movement is used again here. And again, the sudden shifts of melody come as no surprise and sound natural in his approach. This is almost miraculous given how this music is composed. <laughs> At around a minute and 20 seconds, the many pauses sound like indecisive moments as though deciding which path to take rather than as some sort of musical oddity. So he kind of takes the pause like he's kind of looking around. Oh, I have, which which way can I go? In a way, sort of like a jazz pianist might. You know, you could think about him, well, he's got this harmony and it can go this way, it can go this way, it can go this way. And then you have to choose. Mm. And he just takes that moment to make you think that he's just going to choose. Of course, it's already written out, but um, you don't know, you know, when you listen to him, you don't know which way it's going to go unless you know the score yourself. So I really liked that. It's kind of a new thing in this music for me. The third movement, Allegro, is, as in the first sonata, slightly slower than we usually hear these third movements. And again, we get light pedaling and wonderful detail and highly musical melodic lines, despite all of the figuration in the score. The listener relaxes into the relatively slow speed, and the brief movement is over before you know it. So, hmm. All right, the third one. Uh, this is what really one that I really like. I was really curious to hear what he was going to do with this. This is Sonata in E minor, tracks 7 to 9. First movement, Allegro, track 7, has smoothly arpeggiated figures at the beginning, followed by beautifully taken repeated notes, which become a rhythmic motif driving the phrases. Pretty interesting how he picked that up and he made that yeah. sort of the, uh, the motor, sort of the repeating notes. Listen to that, the quality of them, the way he plays them. The tempo is on the slower side, the odd phrase toward the end of the section with the pauses and sudden dynamic changes is taken neatly, with good cheer, but without humor. Um, Jared isn't really playing these for the humor. He's, he sees them. He sees something else here. He sees uh, harmonic possibilities, I think. It's interesting how Jared integrates everything by making it sound spontaneous rather than odd. The buildup of tension just after the three-minute mark, uh, done with repeated notes and a crescendo, is palpable and effectively leads to a repeat of the opening material. The movement with all of its oddity of rhythm and harmony comes across as genteel yet spontaneous with a strong sense of architectural line in Jarrett's hands. Some thematic connections I hadn't noticed before are right on the surface here. So again, he's kind of he kind of makes these um odd harmonies in these sort of rhythmic interruptions just sound sort of spontaneous like he just thought of them on the spot. And uh, I think that's great because it sounds sort of improvised in the moment, and yet mm. it's not. You know, that's really what you want out of a, a classical performance. You want it to sound like it's being sort of created on the spot, even right. though it's not. The second movement, Adagio, is beautifully shaped. Uh, the opening comes across like a slow movement by Haydn. Uh, Jarrett makes sure we're aware that the repeating quarter note chords are driving the rhythm when they appear. Again, this is sort of something repeating that's acting as the motor driving the music forward. It's interesting that he picked this up as a motif in this particular piece. Again, any false cadences come across as spontaneous and aren't lingered on for effect. They're presented by Jarrett as simply part of the architecture. 
I love the odd notes in the bass just after the 2 minute and 10 second mark. And there's a really interesting bass entry at 3.01 that adds to the odd approach to the end. And he just kind of plays the... <laughs> you're, you're like, what was that? But he's already on to the next thing before you figure it out. It's pretty cool. The third movement, Vivace, is played smoothly and at a slowish tempo, with all arabesque-like decoration coming across smoothly. Again, Jarrett brings the quarter note rhythmic drive to the front of our attention, so listen like just past the 1 minute and 20 second mark for that. A lot of the figuration, especially that leading to the cadence, is played staccato. The oddity of the rhythm in this movement with its odd stops and starts can't be disguised, and though he doesn't emphasize it, Jarrett makes it audible while playing as smoothly as possible. It comes across in a way like a running back in American football who's always moving his legs to move forward despite being tackled. You ever see somebody get hit and they're still moving their legs trying to get that extra yard? That's kind of what he makes these sound like with that kind of forward motion that isn't moving because it's being stopped. I thought that was really interesting. The first movement has this quality too. Okay, so we've already heard three of these and I'm already completely intrigued. And there are three more to go. How great is that? <laughs> Now, this is on CD2 if you have the CDs, but if you're on streaming, the next one would be tracks 10 to 12. On the CD, it would be CD2 tracks 1 to 3. Let's see, tracks 10 to 12 on streaming, though. Sonata in B-flat minor, this is the fourth one. The first movement, Un Poco Allegro, has a pretty flourish at the opening. This sounds like it has a bit more room ambience on it, like it's in a concert hall. Okay, I mentioned this at the beginning. All of these um, works were recorded on the same day, and yet here... The room sound changes. The piano hmm, sounds further away. I, I don't really don't know why that happened. Do they go and have lunch and come back and the mics <laughs> were moved? I don't know. It's a little different. It's not that different, but um, I, I did notice it. I like the way Jarrett launches into the second theme without underlining the structural separation, yet his playing is such that you get a sense of it still. At a minute and 30 seconds, there's a surprise pause that Jarrett makes sound structural again by simply acknowledging it then going on. At 2.01, it sounds like we're getting a repeat of the opening, but this is the development section we realize rather quickly, since we're into some odd harmony here. Jarrett has a talent for making the trick recapitulations sound like actual recapitulations, then nonchalantly continuing into the new harmonic material that follows, like it was expected all along. You know, so when that happens, you're sitting there going, wait, what just happened? Where are we? You know? So he's kind of Instead of making us kind of like, say, laugh like other um, you know, keyboardists would here, he's got us sort of like, he's kind of playing with our minds in a way, you know? He's sort of, uh, just just by the way, he's just kind of always moving forward and we're saying, wait, wait, what? You know, like you're hearing this brilliant lecture and you just want to think about something the person said, but he's already on to the next thing. The whole movement is taken in a gentle way with the oddities underplayed, and in this way adding to Jarrett's conception of the flow of the movement, which is up front. It comes across as elegant and beautiful. The second movement, Andante, is very slow and mysterious at Jarrett's tempo. The intertwining melody and accompaniment seem to grow out of the opening like vines twisting around a pole. The entire movement continues to grow, then the harmonies become thinner as it heads to the end ending on a pianissimo. Very satisfying. And this is a really beautiful movement. I really liked the way it was shaped, like how it grows and then it just sort of recedes at the end. The third movement, Allegro, is played at a slowish tempo. This is the norm on this album. It seems that Jarrett is more interested in where the harmony is going than providing any surface level excitement, 
by outlining the uh, the quickness of the rhythm. Let's say he does outline the rhythm, though he gives it a a good uh, downbeat. Jarrett has an interesting way of letting the repeating chords drive the rhythm as well as provide the harmony, whereas most pianists will merely provide the harmony. They just kind of see these chords as you know telling you what the mm -hmm. harmony is. The figuration in the second minute and especially the long trill that we'll hear after 2.15 are smooth and well taken. And notice again at 3.07 how Jarrett will keep the odd pause sounding like part of the structure, which it is, rather than play it for laughs. It occurs to me, well, you wouldn't laugh, but for humor, let's say, <laughs> for smiles. It occurs to me after this, when we hear the trill and left-hand material again, that there's humor there that Jarrett simply lets speak for itself rather than drawing it out. It depends what you want out of this music, but this approach works very well. Okay, we're on to Sonata in E-flat major. This is number five of the Württemberg Sonatas. Track um, 13 to 15 on the streaming. And calculate it for yourself on the CD. If you have the CD, you'll know. This is track four to six on the CD. First movement, Allegro. We're still in the more reverb-laden acoustic that we heard in the uh, previous um, piece. But the recording is close and piano detail is audible. This is a cheerful-sounding theme and is played at a quicker clip than we've been hearing on the album. Jarrett gives the material a real uplift and smile through his highlighting of the rhythmic contour. Really beautiful phrasing is heard throughout this movement, especially in the continuous figuration leading to cadences. Indeed, the movement features a lot of rhythm-oriented highlights, and I especially enjoyed the skipping dotted rhythm in the third minute, and again in the middle of the fourth minute. Beautiful phrasing in the figuration leading up to the seventh minute, then we hear the dancing condensial material, a beautifully realized movement. The middle movement of Württemberg Sonata No. 5, Adagio, uh, starts with an air of mystery to it. Jared is very precise in his rhythm and phrasing, allowing each note to drop exactly where marked. It gives the movement a kind of sense of inevitability. The harmonic material thickens with new lines in the first minute, all kept admirably delineated. This continues to the end, to the understated final tonic. The third movement, Allegro Assai, is another dancing movement complementing the more intellectually formed multi-line second movement. This moves in staccato fourth note chords, so quarter note chords, and individual notes. Jarrett makes chords and individual notes is what I want to say there. Jarrett makes the staccato a thematic motif throughout, so when you hear the staccato you kind of know where you are. It's heard passing between voices like a melody. The energy and staccato are kept up to the end. And we get to the last of the Württemberg Sonatas, B minor. First movement is moderato. It's a slow and rather ponderous approach in the introduction, although this is actually the first theme, uh, built on dotted rhythms. I liked um, Jarrett's approach with the false cadence at around the 45 second mark. At one minute, the opening material repeats. At two minutes, we're already in the development section. Jarrett maintains this recitative-like tempo throughout the movement. I guess it's moderato, as the instruction states, but it seems tempo-wise held back. It does allow the rhetoric in the harmony and thematic material to land, though. At the three-minute mark, for instance, there's a false cadence that impacts beautifully. The recap returns, the recapitulation, and the rhetorical manner continues. The ending just ends on a final unharmonized note. The recapitulation sounds rhetorical without much harmony, pinning it down. And in fact, this movement comes across as more intellectual than the first movements of the other works. And that has a lot to do with the tempo that Jarrett chooses here, as well as the material. 
The second movement, Adagio non molto, moves at a similar speed to the opening movement, but a little slower. Uh, Jared is pulling out a lot of expression here with his touch and the open-ended phrasing and achieves warm cadences. It's a brief movement with a few mysterious touches, like the two interrupted lines about 35 seconds before the end. Third movement, Allegro, uh, finally starts this piece really moving. It's got a fugato opening, which means um, there are different melodies playing at the same time. And uh, Jared keeps the energetic lines fully distinguishable and energetic. I'm especially impressed by how clean the sound in the bass is. It could get muddy, and it doesn't here. The B section of the movement is still in a fugato style, with voices imitating and countering each other, and the opening returns and the fugato style continues to the end. So in conclusion, to wrap it all up, this recording is really special. Uh, Jarrett, as always, has a unique approach and puts these scores across in ways I wouldn't have thought were an option as interpretations. He has a relaxed feel throughout, and as a result, draws out rhythmic and melodic details that we often miss in the more, say, classically oriented, you know, classical pianist-oriented mm. recordings. When Jarrett plays classical music, he brings a jazz player's sensibility to the recording without actually sounding like a jazz player. And he also has the gravity that classical players bring to this music. He's not exactly buttoned up like classical players can be, but he achieves a kind of formal relaxation. I wouldn't call this a definitive recording of these works. They're very individual, really, and there's certainly other ways to approach them. But this stands as unique and highly appealing. It's one that, uh, it's a recording that I'll revisit, certainly. But I, again, I like Keith Jarrett's playing in general. This really should have been released when it was recorded. It may have affected the way we perceive CPE box music and may have changed the way other classical pianists um, approach it in those yeah, intervening sure. years. Uh, so anyway, I think uh, if you like Keith Jarrett at all, if you're a jazz fan... And if you like C.P.E. Bach like we do, this, you really have to hear this. It's really very unique sounding and very beautiful as well. I was really looking forward to hearing this when I knew it was coming out, and I wasn't disappointed at all. Me neither. Overall, it's a very lyrical interpretation. Good, yeah, I think it's so. It's smooth, but not without excitement. We've heard many versions of this on harpsichord, and oftentimes that can come off as a more kind of frantic yeah, uh, interpretation. They, they go for the speed, yeah. Go for the speed, and, you know, it brings out what's exciting about the harpsichord and some more of the quirkiness in the compositions. But here, he's really making this music do what it can best be presented as on the piano. So bringing out what the piano can do that the harpsichord can't. So there's different types of expression with phrasing, dynamics and a variety of touches all leaning towards the smooth side and i can really appreciate the more relaxed nature and listen to these in a different way yeah. than when i listen on harpsichord and as you say this can't be a real probably definitive version uh, because it is quite unique but as a interpretation for piano i really think it's special yeah and, I think so too. Uh, i'm going to be listening to it from time to time again i'm pretty sure yeah this will have a a proud place in my uh, collection when I finally get the CD, which I don't have yet. <laughs> it's pretty expensive It's because it's a double CD set. Right. Anyway, yeah, really great. I wish we could linger on this a bit more. I guess that's it. That's all I want to say about it. But the, these pieces are very open-ended. There are a lot of ways to interpret them. So I don't think the word definitive probably shouldn't even be used because I don't think it's possible to have a definitive version of yeah. works like this. Definitely worth your time, yeah. 
Caulfield and Emmanuel Bach, played by the great Keith Jarrett, 30 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to hear that then. Anyway, on to our second classical album for tonight. We heard uh, Cesar Franck's uh, Piano Quintet. (laughs) We did. (laughs) Two weeks ago. Well, there's another recording. These were both released at around the same time, maybe a month apart or two months apart. This one is César Franck and uh, Frank Martin, the Swiss composer. So Swiss is Switzerland's number one uh, composer, hmm. really, of all time. I guess you could call him the uh, Sibelius or Nielsen of Switzerland, if you think of <laughs> national composers. Right. Although he doesn't really have a national sound, I don't think. Um, these are their piano quintets. So we hear the piano quintet by César Franck, which we heard two weeks ago. Coupled this time with Frank Martin's piano quintet, which I had never heard before. This is the first time yeah, I've ever me heard too. it. Yeah, first time. Yeah. So I'm glad to have that. It's kind of a small piece. Anyway, the artists are Martin Klett on the piano and the Armida Quartet, featuring Martin Funda on the violin, first violin, I guess, Johanna Stemmler on the second violin, Teresa Schwamm on the viola, and Peter Philipp Stemmler on the um, cello. And this is released by Avi Music. The first piece is the Frank Martin Piano Quintet, which I was really drew me. I was really uh, thrilled to hear this, and uh, it didn't disappoint, I have to say. It starts um, the first movement on Dante con Moto. This is a four-movement work, I should mention. It has a string opening with a touching melody in the mid-range that gets passed around through the uh, various instruments. The piano makes its subtle entrance at 41 seconds, and at the beginning is simply underpinning the harmony. When the piano finally gets some material up front at around 125, the piece remains rather quiet and lightly stormy at times. At 2.11, the piano introduces a livelier section and takes the lead. The strings accompany with pizzicati, then take the lead as the piano plays staccato bass notes. The subtle textures are a pleasure for the ear in this sensitively performed movement. There's a dramatic build-up to the end, which features the loudest chord we've heard throughout. The second movement is tempo di minuetto, but it doesn't play out like a menuet, a traditional menuet movement. But the menuet rhythm or theme, I guess, starts lightly and traditionally in the piano. It's got a flutter to it in the um, rhythm, or no, in the uh, kind of harmonic, the melodic decoration. The middle section doesn't sound like a dance at all. It's legato and rather pensive in its sonic profile. At 2.31, very early in the movement, the opening material comes back. When I say very early in the movement, usually we would expect this to happen at the end to close out the piece, but that doesn't happen here. This time the strings interplay with the piano. Then at 3.40, we seem to have entered into a new section entirely. It's rhythmically driven by the piano as the strings rhapsodize on the theme above. Again, the music gets louder at the end, rather surprisingly. There's a sudden pulling back and buildup of harmonic tension, and the opening theme is repeated with the lightness gone and quite a bit of franticness to it. It reaches its cadence in this frantic mood. Pretty interesting uh, approach there by Frank Martin in this case. The third movement, Adagio ma non troppo, uh, has mysterious, quiet, circling patterns in the strings at the beginning, taken at a slow tempo. The piano provides descending chords. Uh, The texture changes to a pulsing rhythm on quarter note chords in the piano as the strings intertwine uh, for the melodic material above. At 3.08, there's a pause. Then a more hopeful harmony is heard in the strings as they flutter melodically around their chord pattern. 
This ends at 424. And there's another pause. Very odd. This kind of took me aback. I was like, whoa. It's like he's pausing for a new section. Then tentative melodic patterns suggest the feel of the opening material. Uh, we get that slightly reorchestrated with the piano playing the circling patterns and the quarter note pulse heard pizzicato. As the movement winds toward the end, the pulse is picked up by the piano bass. There are some intriguing harmonies toward the end of the movement, which does a natural fade. And the fourth movement, presto, starts as a sunny dance movement. And you think, oh, all the clouds are going to be chased away by this wonderful dance-like movement. But no. (laughs) (laughs) We do get the first bit of sustained sunshine we've had in this piece, really. It doesn't stay for long because Frank Martin, after all, is Swiss. (laughs) string string scurry away from the opening theme to explore more harmonic territory then when the opening returns the key dissolves into something more indefinable the rhythm morphs into a piano driven section in the first minute the folk dance comes back briefly at 242 sounding more frantic then it goes into frantic harmony as well Uh, frantic is kind of a word that I'm using a lot for this and uh, the end of the (laughs) previous movement they both do come across that way There are shivering tremolos in the strings at this point after 2.42. The piano playing is colorful here with ear-catching harmony in his kaleidoscopic figuration. When we hear the dance again at 3.58, it's more frantic still and dissolves to a slower, lilting section around 4.15. This morphs again to a straightforward harmonic approach to the final cadence with little dance rhythm audible. We reach the final cadence. There's a downturn to the harmony on the final chord. That really made an impression on me. Not an ordinary ending and some pretty surprising harmony uh, throughout this piece, Mm, especially in the third and fourth movements. And actually the second movement to all of them are. It's a really odd piece, but really appealing. Yes. Yeah. And then we get to the mighty César Franck piano quintet in F minor, opus 14, tracks five through seven. Okay, now I'm always strapping in my seatbelt when I'm going to listen to this piece because I know I'm going to get some histrionics. But we didn't hear much of that in the uh, Trio of Onderer recording, and we don't hear much of that no. here either. In fact, this is a highly musical uh, performance, going for the harmonies and the um, the beautiful melodies rather than mm. any kind of, um, you know, pedal-to-the-floor sort of volume <laughs> that, that I've, I'm just so familiar with from old recordings that really made their impression of this piece on me long ago. Mm. So I'm really enjoying these new recordings of this work. Now, I had called, um, when we heard this, the Trio Wanderer played this um, two weeks ago, I said that was the best um, performance on the album. But I actually like this one even better than that. Mm. And let's get into it, though. I'll see if I can explain why. Uh, the first movement is Molto Moderato Quasi Lento. And I have to say, most some people won't agree with me. It's really a matter of taste, I would say, here. The first movement starts with a crisp rhythm on the violin melody. It's not overly histrionic, which is good to me. Some people might like that, you know, the the really histrionic mm-hmm. sound. But I don't. I like it to be a little more kind of melodic, let's say. Okay, I want it to be calm enough that I can actually hear the melody and the tension in the harmony, not necessarily in the volume. Anyway, the balance and contrast between the anxious strings and lamenting piano in the opening phrases are both well-achieved and well-balanced here. The string theme does sound urgent and at a fairly fast tempo. I'm really enjoying Martin Klett's piano playing in this movement. And I enjoyed him in the Martin, but he really gets to step out in this piece. And we're really hearing what a beautiful tone and what a good player he is in this work. 
The transition at 218 from crescendo to a quick dynamic pullback is well done and followed by another crescendo. Actually, Frank does this quite a lot in this piece and in a lot of his music, where he'll build to a cadence, to a climax, and then just pull back from it. At 325, Klett's tension buildup is dynamic without being overpowering, uh, which I also approved of. <laughs> the dotted rhythms that follow indicate that indeed this movement is moving at a relatively fast tempo, and it's working exceptionally well at this tempo, in my opinion. Everything comes across as highly melodic and musical. Um, I love the warmth that around 425, histrionics are being kept out of this interpretation. Listen at 745 when the opening theme comes back. It's loud without ringing out all of the emotion. And I personally like this approach. The dynamic immediately sinks down to piano for the following material. Piano meaning the dynamic, not the instrument. Hmm. Then a crescendo back to the opening theme. There's more urgency to the playing at this point, brought out by the quick tempo. The piano part achieves power without being explosive, and that helps the overall contour of the work, or of the melodic lines. In the 12th minute, the music soars while heading toward the end of the movement, with not-so-subtle buildups of tension. Again, the fast tempo is paying dividends here. It gives excitement to the harmonic tension. At 13.58, the speed is very fast, but the dynamic is not overpowering, and we get a sense of excitement. The ensemble does well not to underline or exaggerate certain themes here. It's all in service of reaching the very quiet chords in the piano at the end. It's a beautifully shaped movement by the um, ensemble. It's also very long at 15 minutes, so they, mm. I think they did a really admirable job shaping this and following the long line to the very end. And... Uh, making all the melodic material in between sound fantastic. The second movement, Lento, con molto sentimento, also a pretty long movement, is Lento, but um, it's a fairly quick Lento. Uh, the quarter note chords in the piano sounding like a... If you ever... As I ride a bicycle a lot, so I have this bicycle metaphor here. If you're riding over like bumps in the sidewalk that are on every, like <laughs> say, crack, it kind of has that feeling like the time is being marked by the piano, okay, in its uh, quarter note chords. So it's a pretty fast tempo. It doesn't just sound like a, a slow pulse. The strings play the melody over this, and they get a good massed sound when they play harmony, which is very thick. At this speed, the shape of the melodic lines as well as the progress of the music are easy to discern. Uh, scenery glides by to continue my bicycle motif, which stayed in mind as I listened to this entire movement. I didn't even think of this when I was listening to Trio Wanderer two weeks ago. <laughs> by the fifth minute, uh, we're hearing some gentle, sensitive playing by the entire ensemble. This stood out for me because my memories of the piece are all the fortes, and due to the pacing and shaping of the movement, the quieter parts came out vividly for me. Uh, the first time that's ever happened for me listening to this piece. At 6 minutes and 40 seconds, we're back to the bumping quarter note piano chords, which the strings take over at the seven minute mark with a bit of fortissimo. I like the soft dynamic at the end with the piano playing the movement out with its quarter note chords. The third movement, Allegro con troppo, ma non fuoco. Ma non fuoco, without, but, without, but not with fire. I really like that. <laughs> okay, the opening violin arpeggios in this are atmospheric. The piano and strings play ominous chords that don't come across as ominous. But again, the long line of the movement's architecture is being paid attention to here. 
This movement is also being played at a fast tempo. The entire work is played at a fast tempo, and that's impressive because it's a pretty virtuosic work, even at slower tempos. The ensemble never feels under any strain technically, however, and though they generate tension and energy, the musicality of the movement shines through. Listen to the string theme after 130. This suddenly changes to something lighter at around 150, still with the rhythm propelling the material forward. There's a slow building up of tension to ebbing and flowing dynamics with a lot of dotted rhythms into the fifth minute, where we finally get a light climax at 512, going directly into a new section. The dotted rhythm in the melody doesn't ever stay away for long. We hear the piano's hush theme again in the sixth minute. At 7.20, I believe we're hearing an earlier melody after a lightly taken cadence, and this builds via an ebbing and flowing crescendo to the climax that ends the work. I like the characterization of the material by this ensemble throughout the movement, and indeed the whole work, and indeed the whole album. So this is the first time for me to hear the Frank Martin Piano Quintet, and it's a little gem. You should definitely hear it. It's pretty, with an overall dark hue to it, but remains relatively hushed throughout. Performances are sensitive, and the ensemble bring out the subtleties of sound and textures. Uh, the front piece is really the opposite. It's big bones, and uh, but not played very loudly here, although it does get loud. I'd say this is the recording of this work to have. I really enjoyed this a lot. It's highly musical, where other performances can get histrionic, and it's at a rather fast tempo. All three movements are played faster, than uh, we normally hear them. And I thought it worked exceptionally well. Mm. Melodies are beautifully shaped, and the ensemble playing is well integrated. One of the advantages of having a string quartet in the string part, in fact, is that you can integrate the sound really well. Trio of Andorra didn't really have much trouble with this. They're a string trio, but they added a viola and a piano to that uh, recording. Uh, Martin Klett on the piano shapes his part beautifully and plays with attractive tone in this piece and with deep understanding of it, as well as in the Martin Quintet, where he doesn't really stand out as much. It's an album absolutely worth hearing, and I would highly recommend you hear this, especially if you like chamber music. I really enjoyed these performances as well. My overall impression is this great tonal blend on these works with this ensemble. The Martin, for me, was a first as well. I really enjoyed kind of unusual structure of this. Uh, I just found it really endearing. I like the light string timbres against the piano sound in the first movement and really nice dynamic swells. The cello lines are really good. The third movement, all these tonal textures, more swelling of the strings. Uh, yeah, I want to hear this again, uh, first time, but I was uh, very intrigued by it. And I like the Franck performance as well. Like you said, this can be overdone and histrionic in some interpretations of it. Here, the balance and blend is good. There's enough emotion, but a lot of restraint too. And after seven and a half minutes, they start to crank it up after that, but mm -hmm. they've held back. And so you're kind of ready for, you know, the ending mm -hmm. at least to grow a little bit. And I thought that was fine. The second movement, I really liked the sweet and soft violin dynamics after around nine minutes or so. And the third movement, very dynamic. And as you say, it's moving right along tempo-wise yeah. compared to most interpretations. And so it doesn't right. get kind of bogged down. It's emotionally intriguing, but you don't feel tired at the end of it as you do sometimes. And yeah. so I was, you know, I could go back and uh, listen to it again, I think. And I uh, have really good recording, fine ensemble, and nice sound too. Yeah, there's a good sounding recording as well. 
Okay, now I always like to have a, a contemporary composer on if I can. And I found a really good one that I didn't know anything about until today. So another great yeah, this discovery. This is another good find, yeah. Yeah, this here is I great. am complaining about what a what a rough week we had. And <laughs> we heard all this great music. I almost kind of forgot. Anyway, I guess it did lift me up momentarily. And then uh, I got pulled back like uh, Al Pacino in Godfather Part 3. <laughs> you know, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. But then... Um, these records, call, you know, pulled me back out again. Anyway, the third uh, recording here. This is a uh, contemporary composer, Irat Ichmuratov. I don't know how to say that name, but I didn't, you know. I, anyway, but I hope that's right. Piano concerto, and then we have his viola concerto number one, which doesn't have a piano in it. So we do have a work, a piano-less work on this mm. uh, podcast tonight. But. I'm sure you'll think it's worthwhile for itself and because the piano concerto is so interesting too. Okay, the soloists are Jean-Philippe Sylvestre on the piano. And then for the viola concerto, we hear Elvira Mizbakova on the viola. And the London Symphony Orchestra plays this, conducted by the composer himself, Arat mm. Ishmuratov. This is a Chandos SACD. And let me tell you, when I heard this, I really wished I had the SACD because the sound is sumptuous. Mm. These are sumptuously orchestrated works, and it would have been great to hear them in uh, DSD recording, 96 uh, kilohertz sampling, or, or even in five-channel stereo. That would have been really fantastic. I'm going to have to pick this up eventually when the yen finally decides to... Um, <laughs> <laughs> to function like something like money again. <laughs> Currency, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Ishmuratov, let me tell you a little about him. This is actually, um, I think, the third or fourth album of his that uh, Chandos has released. So there are others. And uh, they, <laughs> I just see my bank account just drying up completely <laughs> thinking about that. Anyway, he was born in uh, Kazan, Russia. And he's a Volga Tatar, which is a Turkish or a Turk, I guess they say, ethnic group native to the Volga Ural region of Russia. Hmm. They're the second largest ethnic group in Russia after ethnic Russians. Ishmuratov now lives and works in Canada, and he's considered to be a Canadian composer, but he sounds Russian, to be honest, or maybe, or maybe Turkic Russian. I don't know how, I don't know how the different sort of rhythms and sort of rhythmic profiles right. kind of separate between cultures there. So the whole, see, it's like the whole thing for us sounds Russian, just like uh, when we were kids, like, you know, whether Asians were Japanese or Chinese or Korean, we just thought of them as the same right. <laughs> because we didn't know. You know, now we live here and we <laughs> we, we can tell <laughs> the difference between people from Kyoto and Osaka. It's really crazy. Right. All right. Anyway, as well as being a composer and conductor, he's the clarinetist of the Montreal-based Klezmer group Klezstory. Wow. And uh, the the violist on the album, Elvira Mizbekova, is also a member of that group. And uh, the commission for the viola concerto really came from their friendship, really. Actually, this is Chandos' third album of his music. I actually did okay. write this down. And the soloist recorded here gave the premieres of each work. The first work we hear is the piano concerto. Uh, Jean-Philippe Silvestre is the uh, piano soloist. This piece was composed in 2012 to 2013 but premiered almost 10 years later. So it just sat in a drawer um, <laughs> because Ishmuratov said that he needed the right pianist to play it. He wanted to find a pianist who could do it justice, and he decided that Sylvester was that pianist. And that's the pianist we hear here. 
this is a very big boned work. It's long. Um, each movement is far more than 10 minutes long. Well, the first movement is. The first movement is Andante Affettuoso. Now you want to notice that. Andante usually isn't the way we kind of start off a concerto. They usually start off at a decent mid-tempo. But this is fairly slow. And it starts with amorphous string textures and light percussion. In fact, there's a lot of sort of, I guess, Tartar-like or Russian-Asian-type percussion throughout this work. Mm. The piano comes in rather like the opening to uh, Bartok's third piano concerto, if you know that work, and continues with a sort of Russian-like melody. It's quietly played with a light touch, but comes across with a kind of uh, Russian heaviness to it in the harmony. The next theme takes off in skittering fashion. There's some pretty orchestration in this piece, by the way. Oh, by the way, when I say that, um, it comes across with a kind of Russian heaviness. Think of Rachmaninoff's, the opening of Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, that opening melody. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of Russian heaviness to it, even though it's very lightly played. That's what I mean. It's got that sort of quality. There's some really pretty orchestration in the piece. Listen at a minute and 40 seconds to the burbling winds. At 2.30 and afterwards, Silvestre is put through his paces. He gets excellent tone on his rapid repeated notes. And at 2.55 and after, he puts across a kind of romantic grandeur, again, without getting histrionic. It's very subtle playing. I love the chiming percussion in the orchestration at 3.30. There's a really compelling climax at 4.49. Then at 5.01, a solo section starts for the piano which features rapid figuration over a haze of left-hand arpeggiated material. When the orchestra comes back in, the music becomes more gentle, with the intriguing orchestration again, featuring the English horn in the foreground for part of it. And in fact, this is something Ishmoritov will do when he gets um, a solo orchestral instrument. It'll always be something different and rather a surprise, like something you're not expecting playing a solo part. The piano plays rapid trills to accompany the thematic material in the orchestra, And one thing that stands out for me is the constant marking of the rhythm, first by the lightly played timpani, then by the plucked bass, or I should say the pizzicato bass. The sounds go back and forth. There's a lovely passage with chiming percussion accompanying its 750, and some catchy melodies unfolding into grand statements of thematic material. Indeed, Ishmortov is very good at writing catchy melodies. At 8.30, a huge climax introduces another solo piano section, at first virtuosic, then at 9.20, gentler and more melodic. There are all sorts of rapid scales and trills used in the figuration. Silvestre is an impressive player with a real feel for the heavy Russian, or should I say Volga Tartar, profile of this movement, a feel he manages to achieve with a light touch. I like the way the piano comes out of this solo section at 11.32, with slowly speeding up, repeating figuration. The orchestra really doesn't come back until around 12.53, and even then, only with light chimes. At 13.20, we hear the opening theme again in the orchestra, ending the piano's cadenza. The faster, skittish theme follows, followed by a boldly stated climax and an exciting build to the final cadence, complete with percussive accents. The second movement, Grave Solenne. This is a quiet string melody at the beginning, opening the movement. It has the texture of Mahler's Adagio from his fifth symphony. the, The strings come in lightly in that way, but the harmony is completely different. It features a gradual build to a radiant climax at 235, after which we finally hear the piano gently played over a ticking harp harmonic. 
There are lovely wisps of orchestral melodic accompanying. The movement unfolds slowly, the listener being carried along on building harmonic waves. The piano plays gentle figuration, rarely asserting its presence. This movement sounds like it's composed for its overall beauty up until the point at 557 where the piano gets the spotlight and starts working with some of the material in the orchestral buildup. It starts with light figuration that slowly becomes more emphatic piano chords. Again, there's a slow crescendo continuing through the 8th and ninth minute and finally reaching a rumbling climax at 10.30 when it suddenly changes harmony. <laughs> I'm really I'm sounding like I'm from Boston tonight. Harmony. <laughs> <laughs> and via a harmony, and via a quick diminuendo, dips to a quiet, chiming approach to the end. The third movement, Allegro Moderato, this starts as a streaming wave of orchestral color, after which, at around 30 seconds, the piano begins a cheerful, highly rhythmic theme, complete with virtuosic figuration in its accompaniment. At 146, there's a contrasting, more lyrical theme introduced by the winds, the piano accompanying with virtuosic figuration. The piano eventually plays that theme and has a solo moment at 2.40 with it. There's something woodsy or nature-like about the orchestration afterwards. The music starts gaining in momentum in the third minute. A new rushing section begins at around 4.14 with thematic interplay between the piano and orchestra. And tension builds up with a slow crescendo in the fifth and sixth minutes, featuring interesting changes of orchestral color. This doesn't reach a huge climax, but begins a long diminuendo to just the ending, just before the ending, when a quick crescendo, complete with bass drum and cymbals, brings us to the emphatic ending. This is a great piece. It's, yeah. it's big bones, too, and uh, <laughs> stays. some of it stays in the ear, too. It makes a big impression. We get another big work coming next, the viola concerto, number one. There's more than one. Anyway, this one was written in 2004. And it starts with an andante movement. Again, he really likes to start his works um, mm. slowly. Very interesting. Anyway, this starts with a bass melody answered by shivers in the cellos. There's a big bass drum roll that opens the work up to a grand epic theme. The tempo comes across as very slow and almost frozen. At 124, the viola comes in, and I have to say it sounds a bit distant in the mix. The viola isn't really an instrument that projects very well. It's got darker tones to it, and it's one of the reasons that, that I really love it so much as a yeah. solo instrument, because it's very different than the very bright and projecting violin. It's got a heavily double-stopped theme, and it sounds like it's heading to a cadence in the key it's in, but pulls away. A repeating line, accented by a timpani roll, leads to a cadence, and at 2.34, a repeat of the opening bass line and cello shivers is heard. This time, the theme continues in an interweaving harmonized line in the winds, ending in another cadence which reintroduces the viola. The violist has got a more emotive line this time. When it's done, there's a mysterious, distant, percussive sound that the viola plays a series of three-note phrases over. In the sixth minute, the viola starts some virtuosic bowed figuration, including a glissando up the string, unless it's a very rapid scale. Um, but sounds like a glissando to my ear. The atmosphere lightens with the viola's bouncy melody in the seventh minute, which then slows down and becomes emotive and heavier. In the ninth minute, the orchestra gets the melodic material as the viola starts playing figuration at a slow pace. This builds to some dramatic statements and heightened by timpani hits in the orchestra, then a brief sunny section in the eleventh minute. 
The viola's heartfelt melody from around the third minute is picked up by the orchestra. Then a bass drum roll leads to a thickly scored harmonic section for brass in the 13th minute. At 13.41, the viola starts a skittish, lively line, really blending with the orchestra to too high a degree, I'd say. Um, she's too far back in the mix. Now, I want to say something about this. This is a Super Audio CD recording. I'm listening to a streamed version. Now, I'm wondering what the viola would sound like in the five-channel mix, because it would be isolated probably in the center channel. Mm. And uh, I really wish I could hear that and check it out. I'm wondering if this mix was made with that thought in mind. Mm. Anyway, it does sound a little distant here, and it blends a little too much with the orchestra. It should really stand out. Anyway, the viola part sounds modest in tone, and the viola itself has a darker hue than the violin and doesn't project the same way as I've heard, as I've said. Rapid figuration accompanying orchestral chords leads to the final cadence, and this movement was heavy and had some real power to it. And it's also big bones and long. Ishmuratov makes big statements. Second movement, recitativo. A recitativo is the spoken part in an opera. If you listen to, a, say, a Mozart opera, the characters will talk over like a sort of harpsichord line that's uh, giving them the harmony. And then they'll sing something later. So this movement sort of mimics the talking style um, that we'll hear in those operas. And really, it's, it's less musical and more rhetorical, I would say. Hmm. The viola starts the movement with a solo line. It's somber and carries some emotional heaviness. Double stops appear in the line toward the end of the first minute, and the line speeds to more virtuosic speed. After rapid repeated notes in the viola, the opening is repeated. The orchestra finally makes its appearance towards the fourth minute, gently taking over the viola's themes. There's a particularly haunting line in the solo clarinet toward the end of the fourth minute, accompanied by shimmering string tremolos. I want to mention, I th I'm pretty sure there's a clarinet there, but again, this is another example of a solo instrument emerging from the orchestra just by surprise. You don't know what it's going to be, but it's just that particular color, and it just comes out and plays a melody, and you're just sort of, wow, where did that come from? It's really a great effect. The orchestra tends to unfold the material like it's a flower opening, the material that is. The viola reappears in the fifth minute, playing a theme that's more sweetly taken up by what sounds like a flute. An interesting slow section starts in the orchestra in the eighth minute with slowly drawn out lines accompanied by pizzicati in the solo viola. After this, we hear a marked 6-8 uh, rhythm with the orchestra playing graceful melodies gliding on the rhythm as the viola plays eighth note figuration. I really think 6-8 is my favorite time marking. I, just, I like the way it just sort of glides along. There's a big crescendo in the 11th minute, which makes an arch as it reaches its peak and then decrescendos to gentle themes in the winds. The winds accompany the viola's next iteration of the theme from the near the beginning of the movement. For the end, the viola goes high up in its range for a lovely sighing figure, after which the orchestra heads to a gentle cadence. The third movement, Allegro, moving to presto is a complete contrast to all of the music we've heard so far in this piece. This has a dance rhythm with odd accents placed on it like it's a folk dance. It's fairly lively, but once the melodic material comes in with the solo viola, the rhythm becomes smoother and slower. That opening rhythm comes back like a rondo theme after this solo viola episode and features the viola playing a rapid perpetual motion figure. At 2.38, there's a folk-like profile to the music, which sticks around for about a minute, then gives way to a variation on the dance rhythm as the viola continues its figuration. 
the timpani put an end to that. Then an irregularly accented folk dance rhythm comes in in the fourth minute, complete with a folk music-like modal melody. In the fifth minute, a quieter, smoother section appears. This gives way to faster figuration to bring the movement to a rousing and very loud close, one that I'm afraid drowns out the viola's approach to the tonic at the end. Anyway, it's highly romantic music in the piano concerto with a Russian, or perhaps Volga Tartar, profile to it. Jean-Philippe Sylvestre has the measure of this music at the piano and meets all of its very virtuosic demands without being overly showy, always serving the work. Fantastic. We want to hear the music. He does get his moments in the spotlight, though. It's a huge piece and appealing all the way through. Despite the romantic idiom, this work is filled with interesting orchestral color and immediately appealing melodies and overall thematic material. It's instantly likable and one that you'll want to revisit if only to really get more familiar with the massive material that's presented in this fairly long work. It's a very, I don't want to say long, it's not long like Mahler is long, it's big. There's <laughs> a lot of uh, instruments. The viola concerto is actually heavier and more lugubrious in nature. It's very beautiful in most parts. I didn't get to hear this in surround, but to my ears on the two-channel stereo version that I heard streamed, the viola sounds a bit backward-placed. It's entirely audible, except at the very end for its last notes. Elvira Mishbakova is an able soloist with an intriguing darkness to her tone and plays her figuration with great fluidity. The piece is full of ideas and is appealing despite its heaviness. It's got a romantic profile. Both works are big-boned and will keep the listener intellectually occupied as well as involved by the appealing material. So this composer for me is a real discovery. And oh, now I have to go back and listen to the other two albums. <laughs> yeah, these were enjoyable. Contemporary works in a familiar romantic style. They're melodic and passionate and very Russian in character. The colors of the orchestra and the dynamic contrast are really enjoyable and balance out the soloists' passages nicely. I enjoyed the orchestrations a lot. There's satisfying big brass swells. Ah, yes. Fun you use like of percussion and just exciting music. Yeah, I was really you know interested in the character of the music because I didn't know what to expect uh, with the contemporary composer. But it was all really enjoyable. Like you said, immediately appealing to the ear. And uh, I think if you like your romantic Russian composers and piano works, you're going to really like this. And I also especially enjoy viola concertos because there's not enough of them. Right. And, uh, you know, sometimes violin just gets me in that spot between my eyes with all those <laughs> high tones. And I appreciate the warmer tone of the viola. So not only that, there are loads of violin concertos. Yeah, exactly. It's a second only to piano concertos. Right. So, yeah, I want to hear more from this composer, for sure. Yeah, we're going to have to... I want to say something about contemporary composers. Now, I featured quite a bit of them on this um, podcast. And just to listeners, I think the uh, the big bad days of the uh, 20th century contemporary composer are long yes. gone. Right? <laughs> People are making more musical music these days. And they, they will write challenging works, but uh, nothing like you're going to hear with the 12-tone... The big bad wolf of um, 20th century music mm. that was really responding to the war years and uh, we're we're past that now right yeah let's hear some more and uh and we're going to check out the other recordings too yeah i don't want to sound like it's any uh, great uh, problem for me to listen to the other two albums it's just a big problem for my bank account because <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to want to hear them in surround well moving on with more piano 
in jazz it's going to go solo trio and then ensemble well the first uh, recording was a real treat for me and it's got a kind of title something like <laughs> we would think of for one of our uh, episodes and that's called crazy rhythms yeah exploring george gershwin this is on the sunny side label by pianist denny zeitlin and came out on june 30th of this month so who's Denny Zeitlin? Well, born in 1938, <laughs> that makes him 85 years old. Wow. He was signed by Columbia Records' as John Hammond, starting his recording career in 1963 while he was studying medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. That's amazing. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I could be a doctor, but I think I'll just be a professional pianist. <laughs> anyway, um, Bill Evans was an early supporter of Zeitlin's music and he often recorded Zeitlin's compositions because he wrote a lot of tunes including Quiet Now. Now this is an album I've had for years and years. Uh, let's see, I think it's 1970 and Bill Evans liked the tune so much he made that the title track. However, if you have this recording, I'm sure lots of jazz fans do, I have a whole shelf of Bill Evans <laughs> recordings. Right. It's wrongly attributed to Bill Evans in the album notes. So you don't know that it's actually Denny Zeitlin's composition. And his own recordings, there's a lot of them out there. Soundings, 1978. Uh, there's a duo album with Charlie Hayden, 1981. Time Remembers One Time Once. Denny Zeitlin Trio in Concert with uh, Buster Williams on bass, Matt Williams on drums. I think that uh, was recorded 2001, came out 2009. And let's see, Trio in Concert, also 2009, recorded when he was at age 70. And 2020, live at Mesro, when he was 82. And so he's had this uh, dual career, similar to a pianist we heard a couple episodes ago, Keigo Hirokawa, uh, electrical engineer. He, <laughs> while he was getting his PhD in engineering, he was at the, the conservatory studying music. Anyway, since 1968, Zeitlin was on the teaching faculty of University of California, San Francisco, where he was clinical professor of psychiatry, and he had his own private practice as well. Kind of makes you have a hard time doing uh, one thing, and uh, some people excel at uh, many things. At, at many things, and many difficult things, too. Yes. Not just, uh, you know, music takes a long time to learn. Some people just have like a real knack for just picking it up right away, you know, right. just kind of get a sense of it. I don't know. So now this recording comes out of something he's been doing, I guess for, it says, for nearly a decade, he focused on an individual composer for his annual solo concert at Oakland's Piedmont Piano Company. So this recording comes from 2018, although it was just released now, and he decided to focus on George Gershwin and then record it. And so this was from December 17th, 2018. And so they have a really wonderful concert grand piano that he had selected uh, to record these on. And boy, I'll tell you, this recording just sounds fabulous for yeah, live it recording. Does. It's a really great, great sound. I, and he took a few months to look at Gershwin's songbook and he hoped to find pieces that he had never heard or study pieces that he knew, trying to find new dimensions within each piece. And his aim was to breathe fresh life into the pieces and provide new flavors that listeners might appreciate. And I think he's succeeded very well doing that. Hmm. Most of these are going to be tunes that uh, 
jazz and American music fans will know very well, but there's uh, a couple of things you may have not have heard in a while, or maybe not at all. But we're going to start out with uh, one of the most famous compositions, Summertime. And in fact, there's a lot of Porgy and Bess on this album. There is, yeah. yeah. So, Summertime, Porgy and Bess, 1935 opera. And whoa, <laughs> it starts right out with the strings inside the piano being strummed. Right. And uh, then some rubato-free improvisation, and you don't know what season it is yet. <laughs> Certainly not that it's summertime. <laughs> um, but he gets some rhythmic motion going and a bass line, and then some parallel hand movement ideas, and then suddenly the melody jumps out at just after two minutes. And the thing to enjoy here is the dark reharmonization and moving bass lines that he gets added into here. Uh, Zeitlin finds little spots to make it bluesy as well. Midway through, he lightens it a bit, and he has some shining runs. Then it builds in percussive energy again, swelling and falling. After six minutes, he presents the melody with a new reharmonization and new left-hand bass figure, and keeps it mostly melodic to the end. And the piano is mic'd really closely. It sounds huge and full. The bass is in your left ear and the high notes in the right, just as if you were sitting on the bench right next <laughs> to him. And the crowd shows their enthusiasm uh, right after the end of the track. Track two, how long has this been going on? This is from Funny Face, written mm. 1927, Funny Face musical production, 1928. A rich rubato and flowing with great ringing melody lines to start, and Zeitlin gets it going and gives it a swing in spots. He decorates with descending trickles of notes, and I like how he varies his dynamics and articulation uh, in his improvisations, sometimes smooth, sometimes more staccato. A nice finish with the melody to a rich chord and final high chimes. A very classy performance of this tune. Track three, Wonderful, also from Funny Face. And this one bursts with energy. Starting out with the melody, uh, the rhythmic feel shifts between four and three beats for a bit. And Zeitlin gets into his improvisations with lots of running lines, sometimes with both hands together, rumbling bass lines and inventive right-hand figures. And he brings back the melody to finish it up quickly at less than three minutes on this one. More Porgy and Bess for track four. Bess, you is my woman now. I love this song. That's great. <laughs> And a tender start here with soft repeated notes, then flowing legato lines of melody. Zeitlin keeps it flowing but works up a percussive energy, pretty melodic improvisations and rich chords. After four minutes, it becomes a bit more rhythmic and then he gives a kind of R&B push to it actually with syncopated chords and interesting bass figures before bringing it down soft. And the ending is really dreamy with interesting harmonies. Another poor game best tune for track five, it ain't necessarily so. Well, moving lines of close intervals rise and fall, working into the melody, and he keeps the rising and falling idea in the left hand going. It's an interesting kind of delirious mood. <laughs> I feel a little mm. seasick with it. Uh, the mood lightens after two minutes with leaner lines and more delicate right hand figures of improvisation. Back to the delirium. And then some bluesiness and rippling right-hand figures. A return to the melody and sweeter treatment of different sections of the tune before a light and trickly ending. Lots of different moods explored creatively here with an elegant two-hand synced high-ending figure. Now track six is one you may not know about. Uh, it's called By Strauss. You don't hear it very often though it has been recorded. It comes from 1936 and was originally performed by the Gershwins at private parties. It's an 
homage or more of a tongue-in-cheek kind of maybe mockery of the music of uh, Johann Strauss Sr. and Jr. And uh, it was featured in Vincente Minnelli's 1951 film American in Paris. Uh, Zeilin plays it smooth and lush, kind of as a rubato waltz. His right hand figures really chime and flow, and the left hand ideas constantly change creatively. Track 7, The Man I Love, is part of the 1924 score for the musical comedy Lady Be Good, but it was deleted from that and put into Gershwin's 1927 uh, government satire, Strike Up the Band. Hmm. Well, Zeitlin takes this one at a quick pace, getting it started out with an intro over snappy bass figures. He rings out the melody lines, has interesting movement in the left hand and choppy two-hand chords, light and fleet right-hand improvised lines mixed with low rumbling ideas. And after two and a half minutes, he has some fun sections of fast walking bass mixed in before bringing back the snappy bass figures from earlier. Things uh, get more frantic and insistent before coming down soft with the return of the intro idea into the melody again and he ends up uh, with the intro snappy bass figure idea this next track is something else boy <laughs> oh yeah my man's gone now also from poor game best it's the longest track at almost 13 minutes uh, it starts out with ominous ringing bass notes lots of space and building figures and what sounds like some plucking of the piano strings inside a repeating pedal tone note brings in a new section of spaced out melodic ideas and dense ringing chords. It's very impressionistic and moody. After five minutes, it gets more movement from left-hand lines under the other ideas for a section and then softens to a more delicate melodic section. It becomes more percussive and ringing. There's more scratching of piano strings and other percussive sounds behind his more free improvisation. A cool little maybe damped trill at 11 minutes, you really want to see how he's you, doing some of these techniques. You really want to be watching this performance. Yeah. I feel the people who are there are pretty lucky to have been able yeah, to experience definitely. that. And he returns to the pedal tone idea and then some more softer ideas into a brooding ending. It's very impressionistic, emotional, and uh, draws out a lot of uh, interesting ideas and expressions. Track nine, I've got a crush on you. And this was used for two different Broadway productions, Treasure Girl, 1928, and uh, also Strike Up the Band, 1930. A rubato and smooth intro introducing the melody. Zeitlin's left hand gets some bouncy rhythmic ideas emerging. And there's some ringing right hand sections of improvised ideas and two hand synced up figures. Uh, it gets more and more of a playful rhythmic push, uh, hinting at a bossa nova kind of feel. Lots of contrasting dynamics and articulation. And after five minutes, delicate right-hand figures are cute. And he takes it out with a little rhythmic vamp. Track 10, Fascinating Rhythm. It's from Lady Be Good, 1924. Bouncy with a lot of energy. The rhythms and meters keep changing up with dancing right-hand improvisations and evolving left-hand accompaniment change-ups, including fast-walking bass sections. There's some fun zippy two-hand run ideas, and then things work back into the melody after three minutes with some cool reharmonizations and a zippy ending line. And we're going to finish it up. Track 11, I Was Doing All Right, from the 1937 film The Goldwyn Follies. 
A relaxed, playful swing with snappy bass figures giving motion. Zeitlin adds colorful harmonic ideas. He starts improvising from the lower register with an even lower bass line, working up higher, getting back to the melody with an easy flow, and then rich chords add in while keeping the bouncy bass figures going. He ends it with some final rising chiming ideas. Well, I enjoyed this recording a lot. Zeitlin has great energy and technique. He sounds youthful and experienced at the same time. Hmm. He really gets inside of the tunes and makes you hear them in a new way. Creative rhythmic ideas, new harmonic possibilities, varied dynamics and articulation, all with a sense of exploration and playfulness. He's having fun, and so will you if you give this a listen. And the sound, it's one of the cleanest and most realistic live piano recordings I've heard in a while. Okay, I was pretty intrigued by this too, but I think we need to say to the listeners that if you're just a big fan of Gershwin songs and you think this is just going to be like improvisations on Gershwin, it's a lot more than that. It's sort of um, this. If you think of Picasso's cubist paintings, like of say of like a person, <laughs> you know, you're not. It's a person, but you're kind of seeing it from different angles at the same time. Mm. And I feel like that's sort of what's happening here. A lot of times, I mean, you'll hear the famous melodies, but you'll have to kind of listen to them and sometimes even wait for them a lot. There's a lot of exploring in these yeah. works, and it's a yeah. very artistically rendered uh, versions of these. Um, these tunes some of them are actually kind of disturbing they're not all kind of pretty or on the surface so you need to know first of all what you're getting into but that said these are abstract stylings on this famous tunes there are some challenging harmonic and rhythmic patterns to most of them and it's a real tour de force of harmonic vocabulary this um mm. to me the experience and shows showed a lot to me at least to my ear uh, Zeitlin gets a lot into these um tunes a lot of these, like The Man I Love, Summertime, and especially My Man's Gone Now, the 13-minute track, are given some abstract and compelling accompaniment, bringing us to odd key areas while caressing our ears with the famous melodies. So, in a way, it's kind of, like, you, you can think of this as like, you know, taking medicine with sugar or something like that. You right, know, the sugar right. would be the famous melody, you know. He does give just enough of that for, right. you know, for people who are waiting yeah. for that melody so yeah okay so it's an interesting approach it keeps it kept me listening if you're someone who just loves music in general and you really want the challenge you're going to really love this actually it's a more adventurous than relaxing listen i would say though there are some down tempo straightforward interpretations as well like by strauss inventive playing zeitlin has a lot of ideas they're all over these pieces every track and many of these uh, ideas are unexpectedly dark. <laughs> you know, he really goes into like some really uh, chilling well, he is a moments. a psychiatrist after all. Yeah, yeah. In My Man's Gone Now. Boy. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, uh, like, <laughs> digs deep in that one, yeah. Great inventive piano playing, though, and I think it should be heard, of course. Just, you know, give it a try there. You're going to... Right. Unless you're a seasoned jazz uh, listener, then you're just going to like this right away. Yeah. Makes me have, want to have been sitting there in the crowd for this Yeah, that one. would have been yeah. something, I have to say. Yeah, Just at least to see how he's doing some of this stuff. All right, we're going to go from seasoned veteran to uh, a new face. 
in jazz uh, with a recording that's no less challenging to uh, <laughs> figure out. And the album notes make it all the more mysterious. Uh, yes, so we'll I never read the fun. album notes. I think I was better <laughs> off than you on this. I didn't need to be confused. I actually rather like this. Yeah, this is yeah. a lot of fun. All original music here from our young pianist Ben Miller. Yeah. The Ben Miller Trio on the TRR Collective label. The title of the album is Feathers of Ma'at. So, okay, hold on. We'll explain that when we get here. Okay, I was hoping um, you would because okay. I didn't find I'm out gonna who try. Ma'at. Well, I guess I could have yeah. looked it up, but I didn't. Anyway, he's a pianist, composer, producer, and because of his mother's work as a plant biologist, his family moved around from the Philippines to Peru and then from Ithaca, New York to Kenya. <laughs> Boy, what a contrast mm. there. <laughs> I think he's out of, based out of Rochester now. Uh, his okay. music education, McGill University for a bachelor's degree in jazz performance and Manhattan School of Music for a master's degree in jazz performance. And so in order to understand the album title and the tunes, we'll need some insight from the album notes, which he graciously shared on his Facebook page. And I'm pretty sure this is his debut as a leader, this recording. The title refers to the eagle-winged Egyptian goddess Ma'at, who is the embodiment of truth, order, balance, law, and justice. In hieroglyphic art, Ma'at is shown at the moment when the soul of the deceased is weighed against the feather of truth. Ah, yes, I do know this story. Okay. To determine whether the soul is worthy of continuing into the afterlife. And he says, to me, Ma'at feathers represent the hope that the karmic laws of the universe will eventually resolve all imbalance and injustice. Hmm. There's a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so Ben Miller on piano, he's got Rhodes on one tune here. Taru Alexander, fine young drummer, and Joseph Lepore on bass. Track one is called Wise Path. The notes say it's an homage to the middle pillar of the Kabbalistic tree of life from esoteric lore. Man, this guy goes deep. Into yes. <laughs> We're just getting started here. Okay. <laughs> All of his tunes have rather unique structures, rhythms. and That's true, yeah. I, you know, I listen to this sort of casually two or three times through the week, but it's going to take a, a number of times to listen to this intensely yeah. to figure out all the th structures that are going on. I only had one listen to do that on, so I'll just outline... What's I was thinking on? the same thing when mm. listening to it. I was like, this is really complicated. <laughs> so <laughs> it is. Like, it's not, it's not going to be picked up on a first listen. No. Mm. And it's all original, so... Well, this starts with an eight-measure intro of syncopated piano chord patterns uh, with a bass and left-hand piano figure between phrases. Uh, it's in a slow four-beat with piano fills. The next section keeps the feel with piano uh, fills to a hold in a trill, and then it bursts out with a driving swing for the melody. I'm not really sure of the structure. You'll hear a catchy, repeated figure in Miller's right hand. It's kind of like a 13-measure section, and then it comes back, that figure, in what seems to be a 21-measure section. Uh, one more phrase with that figure, and that it kind of modulates, and he's off on improvised lines over Lepore's furious walking bass. 
Miller keeps his lines rhythmic and snappy, working up with light but punchy left-hand chords, and Lepore gets a bass solo next with heart attacks and high-energy phrases in the upper register and a cool rhythmic ending. Then Miller trades some soloing with Alexander's drums before going through the melody sections right to that figure where it kind of modulates to end the tune. It's a very high-energy start. Hmm. Track two, Azoth, which is the universal solvent symbolized in the Azoth Talbot, a Renaissance mandala depicting the seven vital phases of alchemy. Okay. All right. Let's so, sink in for a bit. So which, uh, which culture does this come from? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, Azoth? I don't know. Okay. Alchemy kind of sounds like Europe, though. Yeah, European. Okay. Well, another energetic rhythmic tune, it starts out with a medium 4-4 swing feel with a melody of short falling and rising piano phrases over changing modal harmonies. But there's also a few kind of bebop-like cadences and licks mm -hmm. in there too. It's kind of a fusing of both those jazz traditions. Very syncopated bass and piano chords underneath. And the meter seems to switch up with more syncopated repeated note figures. But I don't know how you would count it or where it exactly changes. Very complex rhythms going on here. The first phrase idea repeats into another section of chords and pulsing bass. And Miller's improvisations are smooth and free-flowing over the still pulsing bass and Alexander's free fill idea ideas on the drums. Things gel into more of a straight swing feel with walking bass for the duration of the piano solo. And Alexander gets a drum solo with a lot of tight figures. Bass and piano return over him with synced ideas to build into another run through the melody sections to end it up. Hmm. Track three, Internal Eyes, and the name refers to the pineal and pituitary glands. Look inward. This one's a slow 4-4 ballad with soft brushes from Alexander and ringing bass notes synced with Miller's melody phrasing. The harmonies are rich and interesting. There seems to be two eight-measure sections with a lifting harmonic shift in the fifth measure of each, and the second section has some interesting change-ups in the rhythmic flow. Miller's improvised solo has interesting articulation, mixing more flowing lines with soft staccato ideas. I like how he builds phrases in ideas kind of in waves and has some nice ringing high register repeated figures. They hit the changed up rhythm section in sync at the end of his solo and then they take it through the melody sections again. Track four, Seahorse Valley, the Mandelbrot set, a mathematical fractal known for its beauty and never-ending detail, contains a section known to mathematicians as Seahorse Valley. It is full of double vortex structures that resemble seahorses. A double vortex can also represent synchronicity between the activities of the pineal gland and the hippocampus, a gland in the brain that shares its name with the seahorse genus. Hmm. Right. What do you think this guy would be like to hang out with? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Is this what he talks about? Like, if we go out, like, one night drinking or something? I well, know. I haven't had album notes this fun since the Spiral Trio. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we kind of rewrote those, yeah. So, um, yeah. this one really swings over walking bass and dancing cymbals from Alexander. The melody seems to be a 34 measure construction that has repeating figures that catch your ear. Maybe those are the double vortexes that 
you know, keep coming to scoop you up. We hear it twice and then has some interesting syncopated sections and a fourth measure uh, that seems to only have two beats <laughs> when it comes around. I don't know what's going on with the uh, meters here. Miller's piano solo has a mix of smooth swinging lines and fun choppy syncopated two-hand figures uh, with uplifting melodies. And Lepore has a busy bass solo with interesting melodic ideas and pauses in there. He keeps a ringing tone in the middle and upper registers. They take it through the melody another couple times and give it a unique ending with a dreamy halftime feeling vamp of a chord pattern with pulsing bass and gentle piano lines from Miller. Track five, Zeptepi. Here's the key for this one. Fill me in because I don't know this one uh, either. <laughs> the Turin Royal Canon is an ancient heractic papyrus that contains the most comprehensive list of the reigns of early Egyptian rulers hmm. that we know today. In ancient Egyptian culture, the primordial time of the golden age before creation was known as Zeptepi. Hmm. Well, this one starts out with an intro of 14 measures of forceful forward syncopated motion of piano chords and figures set over undulating bass and left-hand piano lines. It settles into more of a groove with a 16-measure melody section and then a section with drum clicks and some kind of uh, Egyptian-like modal patterns in the bass and chords that take on five and then kind of six-beat feels. Miller's improvisation has a lot of interesting harmonic navigation, starting from sunny major ideas and weaving through a lot of modal changes. And Alexander gets an energetic drum solo. Piano and bass return with some rhythmic grooving to some more modal fun over five-beat bass ostinato grooves. We hear the original melody section again through the other sections and some space for final fills from Alexander to the end. Now, the next track, I actually know what this is. The Ennead. So... It's a group yeah. of nine deities worship in the ancient Egyptian city of Heliopolis. Hmm. Uh, and he says, in this piece, I set out to create a synergy between two triads of the hexatonic scale, a nod to the concept of three to the power of two, hmm. which equals nine in mathematics. Right. So hexatonic scale, a scale of six pitches right per octave. Mm -hmm. So you could get different kinds of scales like that, I guess, whole tone scale, augmented scale the blues scale even and i think there's something like a prometheus scale too right mm. uh, so we all be six note scales well uh miller switches to the roads for this tune and uh it's swinging and speedy with walking bass from lepore uh, the melody is a repeating 16 bar structure that's bluesy but once miller starts soloing then it switches to follow a 12 bar blues cycle and miller's lines swing hard with lots of melodic ideas and little spots of harmonic tension really getting the charm out of the Rhodes sound lapore gets a walking bass solo over tight fills and hits from alexander and then two more runs through the melody close it out Track seven, not Rubik, but Lubik's Cube, L-U-B-I-C-Z. And this is French Egyptologist and mystic R.A. Schwaller de Lubitz, who spent 12 years visiting and studying the architecture of the Luxor Temple, culminating in his 1949 book, The Temple in Man. He uncovered many secrets about our spiritual anatomy hidden within the temple's design. The meter here is seven, this tune, uh, which reflects the number of primary chakras in the human body. So the seventh tune in a seven-beat meter. 
This is a lot to remember. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that well, this is another example of, mm. uh, well, we had four weeks in a row. We had a 7-8 tune. And right. we skipped two weeks. Well, here's another one. And now we're and back. That always gives you that uh, pushing ahead feel. But this one kind of counts as three weeks of 7-8 It's just because of <laughs> the, the symbolism of the yeah. 7 <laughs> Yeah, so we've got the unique seven-beat meter, sunny chords, and rising piano figures that make a hopeful mood. The melody has an eight-measure main section, a four-bar contrasting section, and then we hear the first section again, followed by another contrasting section. It seems to be like six measures that goes into a bass solo from Lepore. And then Miller's solo is rhythmic and melodic, keeping the sunny mood, nice accents and hits from Alexander behind his lines. And we hear the melody again, and then a happy two-chord major vamp for some final pretty piano lines. Track eight, Rise, Tide, Rise. The notes say this is an instrumental version of a piece Miller wrote with original lyrics that relate to his experience battling the tides of schizoaffective bipolar disorder. So mm -hmm. rising positive tides than of increased vitality, productivity, and happiness. So I guess it's hoping for waves of positivity in your life. We I'm could certainly use some hoping of those. for that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alexander starts it out with a speedy drum fill. The melody has a constant forward syncopated push with sections of bass and left-hand piano lines taking the lead in spots. Uh, Lepore is first up for a bass solo with aggressive attacks and building melodic ideas. Miller's solo on this one is contrastingly more relaxed in approach uh, in, in his phrasing, having fun with stretching rhythmic feels, and then some more percussive ideas. They go through the melody again with some extended rhythmic vamping at the end. And we're going to end up with Unjaded Hero, track 9. This one is an instrumental version of a composition that originally included lyrics about an unidentified female superhero's consistency in displaying her prowess. Her most notable trait is not her heroism, but the persistent and reliable way in which she applies it without becoming jaded. Hmm. The snaky and angular harmonic movement and forward pulsing melody attempt to capture this quality. That's what the notes say. Ah, how not to become jaded. I think it's too late for us, Mike. Well, I guess you do a podcast every week and you just sort of, you would think that would lead right to jadedness, but not yet. No, no. We're still We're having digging fun. this. Yeah. yeah. Three yeah. years in. Wow. I like to think that we're a positive force in the world, you know, the adult so. music podcast, bringing happiness to everyone. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. On this track, I noticed a difference in sound quality. I don't know if you okay. noticed this or not. Uh, the, tone, no. the tone of the piano is different right away, and then the bass sounds really different. So I don't know if this was uh, recorded in a different location or not. It's a 6-8 tune with a 10-measure intro. Miller starts it out, and the bass and drums join in from the fifth measure. I wasn't quite sure where the melody ends. <laughs> Miller's <laughs> improvisations begin here. Uh, I'm not sure. It just kind of flows into each other. Uh, the harmonic movement is angular as described, with interesting modal changes. Lepore has been pumping some rhythmic bass and cool ostinato figures, and he takes one of those uh, figures into his bass solo, and he sounds much woodier on this track in tone and uh, working more in the lower register with uh, ringing interval ideas. He gets a groove going with some more repeated figures for Alexander to start getting worked up into a solo. Uh, the cymbal sounds really swell behind him. The tones are interesting. And Miller returns with some more intense modal piano. And Laporte takes it out with ostinato and intervals with some final cymbals from Alexander. And that's it. 
complex and interesting original tunes it will take a while to get to the heart of, but the common point here is rhythmic intensity that pulses through all the tunes. Miller has unique ways of using harmony in his compositions to make for interesting structures to solo on. His solos are exciting with well-developed melodic ideas. The trio's interaction is tight with energy-charged drums from Alexander and cool bass grooves from Lepore and solo spots from both to show creativity. The material is a challenge to figure out, but it's exciting and an enjoyable challenge while you're listening to it. So uh, all fans of piano, if you like modern, fresh jazz with an edge, I think you'll like this recording. The uh, word that came up for me a lot in this album is uh, caffeinated. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's kind of funny because it's really high energy uh, throughout. And I was just thinking it's actually a pretty good word to describe the album because I remember reading a book called... Um, the History of the World in Six Glasses. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have that book. Yeah, Tom, I don't know who wrote it. I, I can't remember. I've heard something shelf my head. Do you have it on your shelf there? I have it in the back. But um, in it, he talks about like different drinks that sort of shaped um, right. culture. Yeah. One of them was coffee, and that was the uh, fuel of the Renaissance, not the Renaissance, the Enlightenment. Yeah. So people would hang out in coffee shops and put across their new ideas as you were. Uh, explaining each of these tracks and what they were about and what the inspiration was. I was thinking, oh, this would be the kind of thing we would hear in one of those coffee shops, you know, for someone right. who was drinking a lot of coffee and was highly caffeinated. I wonder if Miller himself uh, is a heavy coffee drinker. Anyway, the album is uh, very high energy, and I found Ben Miller's solos to be highly inventive. Hmm. His approach to the piano is a bit out of the ordinary and really riveting. He doesn't really go into traditional piano solos. He'll keep the solo edgy, and he has a lot of odd excursions into harmonic territory you wouldn't expect, and sometimes within a single phrase. I, I heard this in uh, Zep Tepe. I should have recorded the time. And the rhythm section is aggressive and hard-hitting, too. And the bass solos are always, like, super high energy. Mm. I actually thought of... I actually said that the bass player is the black rifle coffee of bassists. It's kind of like a double the caffeine or something like that. It's like a private company in the U.S. that makes coffee. Um, I like hearing him, though. I mean, he was, uh, mm. he made, oddly, hearing the bass playing on this album made me feel younger. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why. It was it's just kind of maybe because yeah. he was so, <laughs> you know, just so energetic and the, the melody it just kind of, I don't know. I think he kind of like de-aged me with his energy or something like that. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I warmed to, to this uh, album more as it went on. At the beginning, I was like, oh, man, this is going to be really rough going. But it wasn't really. It was it was a bit of a challenge because it's so hard hitting. But um, I really warmed to it as it went on. And I think uh, listeners will, too. The grooves are pretty funky. There's quite a bit of intellect in the complex chord patterns and the solos over them. So highly engaging and, uh, mm. yeah, kind of unique. Um, yeah, just I, I don't want to call it a challenge. It's really not. It's um, it's exciting and different and something just unexpected, let's say. I, I want to encourage you to hear it, everybody. Give it a listen. I wouldn't mind having a CD of this album just so I could have the booklet notes because <laughs> <You know? laughs> they yeah. sounded really interesting. Uh, when I was, uh, you know, finally got down to the limited time I had to take notes on this. I was like, oh man, I, I need another day. I just, I really like to do just one album a day so I can I'm take as like much time too. as I, as yeah. I need. And uh, yeah, cause there's a lot going on here <laughs> and I would yeah. have liked to have repeated certain sections to pick out more harmonic ideas and um, also the structures. Cause um, 
there's yeah, kind the, of unique things going on. When I do the podcast too, like the, when we're listening to these albums, the quality of listening when I'm doing it for the podcast is far more intense than I normally listen to music yeah. with because I'll just have it on and I'll pay attention to it. I'll listen to it, but it won't be trying to identify things and stuff. Yeah. I'll just be hearing it and enjoying it, you know. Definitely a young pianist, lots of creativity and energy to be on the lookout for, Ben Miller. So, Ben, we're waiting to hear what you do next. Keep them coming. We're going to uh, take a trip over to the UK for our last jazz album. Pianist Zoe Ramans. Hmm. Color of Sound is on Manushi Records. So, Raman was born and brought up in Chichester, West Sussex, England. Her father's Bengali. And she has an English-Irish mother, and she studied classical piano at the Royal Academy of Music. Yeah, and it shows on this album, I want to say. Yeah, there's a lot of classical figuration on this. She received a music degree at St. Hugh's College, University of Oxford, and won a scholarship to study jazz performance at Berklee College of Music in Boston, where she had lessons with Joanne Brackeen. And while in America, she formed her own trio, which featured bassist Joshua Davis and drummer Bob Moses. And so she's got about a 20-year discography going back to 2001, The Cynic, 2006, The Melting Pot, 2007, Zoe Robin Trio Live. Also the same year, she had an album, Where Rivers Meet. And then jumping to 2011, Kindred Spirits. Those were all on the Manushi label. 2013, Unison. That was on a different label. And 2015, Dreamland. And this is uh, the one next after that, I believe. So Zoe Raman's on piano with all compositions and arrangements on this new recording. Alec Dankworth on bass. Gene Calderazzo on drums. Her brother, Idris Rahman on tenor and alto saxophone and clarinet. Roland Sutherland, flute and alto flute. Alex Rideau on trumpet and flugelhorn. Byron Walden also on trumpet. And Rosie Turton on trombone. Start out the album with the first track, Dance of Time. Solo bluesy rhythmic piano gets it started out and bass and drums join in. The melody comes from Sutherland's flute working with Raman's right hand as well. It's a minor, modally fun tune. The meters seem to shift a lot, sometimes settling in on a six-beat feel. Raman solos first, mixing in big, ominous chords between running lines. Uh, Sutherland follows with breathy and fluttering flute lines, and they go through the interesting melody sections again uh, to wrap it up. And as Mike hinted at, you're going to get a <laughs> sense of that classical training oh, yeah. in uh, Raman's uh, approach to soloing. Track two is called For Love. Idris Rahman's on sax here. Sounds like alto on the melody to me, and it shares the melody lines with his sister's piano. Uh, brass lines fill it out with rising lines below. There's a lot of syncopation that disguises the meter until things pick up with a more swinging section that comes to a pause, then a return to the original groove and a repeat of the sections. And Idris Rahman gets a gutsy tenor sax solo then mm. over the original slow feel that comes back again. He gets into some high cries and then takes it down low before things shift into the faster swing feel again for Zoe to get a piano solo. And it gets really ringing with trills and punctuated chords. The horns have backing lines behind her and then return to the melody sections. It vamps with more tenor sax and some bluesy piano licks to close it out. Track three is called Little Ones. 
A soft solo piano starts this ballad out, and Idris Rahman takes the lead on a rising clarinet line that really swells uh, through this melody. It ebbs and flows, picking up motion in spots. Colorado's drum gets more subdivisions and skittering things going on underneath, and Dankworth has a longing and ringing bass solo here, with Rahman's rippling piano solo after that that has some interesting harmonic tensions in it. Uh, the clarinet returns with a final swelling melody and a soft ending. Track four is called Sweet Jasmine. This one has a kind of eight-beat feel with a funky drum subdivision idea going on under it. The melody lines have a blend of harmonized flute and trumpet lines. Uh, sounds like alto flute, so they're really kind of rich tone to it. And Raman has a cool left-hand piano figures and bluesy fills underneath. A rhythmic and punchy piano solo on this one, getting into a groove along the way with some descending lines and rolling figures. I think this one is uh, Byron Wallen on trumpet here with a solo. He's got kind of expanding harmonic ideas into more bluesy licks with soft articulation. The horns get some more melody before they build up the tension to the end with a repeated piano and bass riff uh, that the horns join in on to end it. Track five is called Go With The Flow. This is a modal tune with thick lines of flute and flugelhorn. Starts out with a 6-8 groove, but accented lines and syncopation mix up the feel as it moves along. Raman solos first on piano with rhythmic figures and explosive chords. Dankworth has a rhythmic and bluesy bass solo. And then Alex Riddell gets a flugelhorn solo with some cool modal navigation and smooth lines. They take it through the melody sections uh, with the horns to wrap it up. Track six is Roots, a piano opening that gently evolves with minor modes, ripples, and ringing trills. After two minutes, Rahman gets a groove going that gets joined by bass and drums with a very straight beat. Uh, Dankworth's bass syncs with the evolving left-hand piano lines. After some hypnotic rhythmic grooving, Rahman moves into improvisations, developing into waves of sound covering the whole range of the piano and then percussive chords. She works up a groove again, chiming out chords, and they groove out to a rhythmic ending. Track seven is Unity, another solo piano start with rolling and unfurling lines. Sutherland joins on flute with flowing melodic lines matching the piano. Trumpet and trombone join in with waltzing horn lines, making a thick arrangement as things get more animated. It returns to the more lyrical flute lines for a bit before building back up rhythmically with the horns. Uh, things quiet down for a piano solo over chugging bass from Dankworth. And now a kind of samba feel forms with horn backing lines. Idris Rahman gets an alto solo on this one. And then the thick horn arrangement returns with flowing lines into more rhythmic figures. Flute and piano end it with a final flowing line. Track 8 is Peace Garden. Gentle flowing, descending piano lines over rising bass ideas joined by Dankworth and soft cymbal and tom textures make a dreamy and impressionistic atmosphere. Continues on with Raman expanding with rippling improvisations and adding harmonic tension and release in ringing lines. It calms and reduces to lower ripples to finish over the toms. And that's it. Raman's compositions are very unique. There's a lot of modal harmonies, shifting rhythmic feels, and changing structures. Uh, I didn't even try to uh, measure out and figure how long the sections are because they're constantly changing uh, along with the meters. The horn arrangements are interesting with flute, sax, trumpet, flugelhorn, trombone, 
Her solos on piano are quite unpredictable. She surprises going in different directions or with unexpected techniques, often with very sweeping kind of lines of classical background is apparent and very percussive chords. I was always surprised <laughs> and I didn't know what she was going to do next. Hmm. But the arrangement of the tunes in her own uh, original melodies are kind of unique. So I had seen her in the UK jazz press. And when I saw this come out, I thought I would check it out. So it's a very unique sounding concept. The arrangements are kind of inventive as well. And a lot of different moods here. So uh, yeah, check this out to round out today's piano collection. Well, the uh, the thing that really stood out for me, I mentioned it right at the beginning, was her... Uh sort of classical figuration it really is all over this album her classical training is uh mm. very audible throughout she really makes that part of her uh, sound as does like she plays really loudly a lot she really likes to oh yeah she's hammers on the piano makes it a really almost percussive instrument mm. like like she's trying to project to the back of the room in a classical concert hall so i just felt like this was very classically inspired um given the we had the flute too which kind of softens um the the texture a little bit when you hear it yeah so i thought that uh color of sound was a good uh, title for the album really because of the inclusion right. of the flute there were a lot of interesting colors in the uh arrangements as well so yeah, the playing is yeah, it's it's jazzy. Harmonies are, are very thickly kind of laid on, like a big mm. thick brush. Um, the, the ensemble is pretty large, and I said the piano playing is hard hitting, not as hard hitting as uh, my character Anthony Marlowe in my novel <laughs> Extreme Music, who plays a piece called "There Lay the Piano Slain," and it uh, results in his death. <laughs> You'll have to read the book to find out why. The piano on this album is definitely the standout instrument, not least due to its emphatic attack throughout. Raman certainly makes her presence felt on this album. Mm. But the wind instruments stand out too for their unexpected timbres. And uh, again, this is not a late night listen. In fact, this one will have the neighbors complaining <laughs> if you play it too late. But it is an adventurous uh, listen, mm. and uh, maybe mid afternoon or you know yeah. before before your uh, five o'clock. Uh, It'd be a good you know, cocktail mag hour. Mag uh, magnum of champagne. Whatever. <laughs> what are we thinking? Uh, Prosecco these days because it's getting right. that summer's coming. So, yeah I, yeah, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Three very different uh, jazz recordings for piano. I try to mix it up. And we got different generations. Got solo, trio, ensemble, both sides of the Atlantic. We just keep bringing, <laughs> bringing all the new music as I find it and categorize it. It's a pretty interesting uh, week this week with the uh, music we had. Yeah, it was really good. I, I was, yeah. uh, you know, with the uh, classical, of course, we had been waiting for the Keith Jarrett for a long time, and so that yeah. did not disappoint. Then we had this uh, great Martin recording. It was new Frank for both Martin of recording, us. Yeah, new that piece was really nice. Maritov, the uh, Russian composer, Russian slash Canadian composer. Yeah, that was, that was a real pleasant surprise. Yeah, that was a real find, yeah. And uh, yeah, and then jazz, we had this... Uh, Ishmoratov, sorry, I said it wrong. Okay. We had this great uh, Zeitlin uh, Gershwin uh, exposition. That, that yeah. was pleasing. We got a, a young, exciting uh, composer, pianist, and uh, we got to hear some uh, jazz from the UK too. So I'd say there was some adventurous uh, piano playing this week. It, was, it, was, it wasn't yeah. just an ordinary piano episode. It was really adventurous. Yeah, yeah it was. Maybe yeah. we should call this episode Pianosaurus. Pianosaurus, yeah. <laughs> I, I, think there's an, I think there's actually an ensemble called Pianosaurus, though. I don't know if we can... Uh, probably uh, there is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are we going to call it? I don't we know. we got to go for something big, though. I think I think uh, something hard-hitting or something. Well, we'll talk about it in a minute. 
giant pianos. Uh, giant like pianos. Yeah. Well, yeah. they are giant sounding pianos. That's for sure. All right, before we go, um, mm. there's a new, as, as we were recording the podcast, the news came in that uh, the English singer, Jane Birkin, died at age 76. Oh. So uh, she was um, in a movie called Wonderwall. She was kind of like a bit of a, an icon in the uh, mm. 70s. And she was also um, hung around with uh, Serge Gainsbourg back in the day when he oh. was around too, the French singer. So farewell, Jane Birkin. Oh, farewell. Well, to give you a heads up on uh, next week's episode, we've got our theme, and it's going to be a Latin week. Yeah, it's going to be Latin. And for me, it's going to be mostly Mexican, which is going to be interesting for me because I don't know much about Mexican classical music beyond like um, uh, Cesar Chavez or, you know, the very famous composers like that. This just in to the Adult Music Podcast email. What's that? We got the uh, flute music from Mexico album notes. Oh, so, fantastic! They're really yeah. that's really nice of them. We really need the baroque the baroque album notes though <laughs> because those have vocals on them, and I yeah. don't know what they're singing. Yeah, that would be helpful, <laughs> right? Hopefully, they'll get that and send that to us. So, but anyway, thank you Albany Records for sending those. If yeah. you're listening, yeah, we could use those. Not only Latin, but I thought I had this feeling that I had enough Latin releases on my jazz list, but I was able to narrow it down to. <laughs> Even smaller subcategory. It's all Latin trombone next week. Wow! So, in jazz, Boy. so there you go. It's going to be some pretty unique, uh, a unique Latin week, I think. Uh, I think next so. Week. Yeah. It's not just going to be ordinary Latin jazz. It's going to be yeah trombones. So if you want to know what those uh, recordings are, all the Latin music for next week, uh, you can uh, find a playlist for next week. That'll be up on Deezer a couple hours after this episode is released and I'll also have a link to it on our Facebook site. So definitely come over and follow us there. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard, that podcast. Same difference. Yeah. Same difference. There's yeah. going to be a little promo at the end of this. Thanks as always to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Got any final words there, Mike? No, just uh, rest in peace, Jane Perkin and Andre Watts too from That's the right. beginning of the uh, podcast. All right. Looking forward to getting some Latin grooves going for next week, episode 124. So until then, keep listening. Check out that playlist early. And we'll see you again next week for a new episode. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop show tunes ballads you name it yeah we've got them here we drop a new show on you every other week and we take a standard and we listen to a few different versions of it same difference come join the fun looking forward to seeing you